Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Alinda Moyd. Alinda, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me today. Alinda is an adjunct professor of law at the Howard University School of Law in Washington, D.C. She specializes in prisoners' rights, parole, and reentry representation. And she's joining us today to discuss the topic of parole reform. Alinda recently authored an article in the CJ Magazine on the racial justice issue. So I encourage you to take a look at that article in addition to listening to our conversation today. It goes into more depth around the racial justice concerns and some of those disparities around parole that can really help add to this conversation we're going to have today. And today we're going to talk specifically about some reforms that are being brought forward as a discussion, people working to try and address problems in the criminal justice system. But before we jump into, you know, those reforms and some of the debate in this area, Alinda, just for all of our listeners to make sure that they're tracking, would you clarify the difference between probation and parole? Sure, I'd be happy to do so. And that is a question that we often get. So both of them actually equate to a person having an opportunity to remain in the community or be released to the community without having to serve time behind bars. But the way that I like to make the distinction is Probation usually is ordered on the front end of the sentencing process, and parole typically comes at the tail end. So a person can go to court, be ordered by the court to serve a sentence, and then the court might say, instead of going to jail, in lieu of going to prison, I want you to be on probation for a set time period. Whereas a person who is on parole, that person would go to court, be sentenced to serve time in prison, and then at the end of serving that time or before that time is actually completed, they would be given an opportunity to serve the remainder of the sentence in the community instead of behind bars, and that person is typically on parole. So in many jurisdictions, they look very much the same in terms of the conditions that a person has to abide by, in terms of the agency that a person has to report to, they might look very much the same. But again, probation is typically on the front end and parole is typically on the back end. Great. Thank you for that clarification. That was very helpful for myself. I'm sure our listeners will agree too. So let's now talk about some suggested reforms and their potential impact on the criminal justice system. So Alinda, I'm going to list off several of these reforms. And one idea, if you would please just speak to each of these as if I've asked the question, what impact can this reform have on the criminal justice system? So let's start with implicit bias training and increased diversity on parole boards. 
So I'd like to start by just reminding all of us that we all have unconscious biases or preferences. An implicit bias is like an unconscious association or belief or attitude that we have towards a certain group. And all of us have them. But when we are in the position of being decision makers, especially when it comes to someone's freedom, it comes to a liberty interest, we must be as neutral as possible. And so it's incumbent upon individuals who are decision makers to identify those biases and learn techniques and skills that will minimize those biases. A fairly commonplace example of this is seen in studies after studies that show people frequently associate African-Americans with criminality or criminalized behavior. Even when they don't realize they're doing it, this often happens. And so training helps us to, again, identify what those biases are and helps us to avoid acting in accordance with those biases as we make decisions. And so parole boards should also be representative of the communities that they serve. There are some parole boards, namely Virginia, that now have returning citizens serving on the board. And so Kimba Smith is one fine example in the state of Virginia, who is a formerly incarcerated person who now serves on the Virginia Board of Pardons. So if I can appear before someone who has walked in my shoes, then I might have a better chance, not necessarily at getting a favorable outcome, but at least I can leave that hearing room knowing that I have been heard and feeling like I have been understood by the decision maker. Mm -hmm. That's valuable, of course. So thank you for helping walk us through why that's so valuable. The next one I'd like to have you speak to is increase the transparency around the development of risk assessment tools and increase independent oversight of these tools. So at many different stages in the criminal justice system, we use risk assessment tools. We use them at the beginning of the process to determine whether a person should be detained or whether they should be held pretrial. We use them when individuals are inside the institutions to determine what their security level should be, what their classification is. We also use them when determining if a person should be returned to the community. And when you look at the many of the algorithms that are used, they do contain inherent biases. If I am living in a community where my contact with police is likely to be higher than in other neighborhoods simply because of over-policing and surveillance that takes place in some communities. When I am scored 
on a risk assessment. And one of the questions is, how many contacts have you had with the authorities? Or at what age did you first have contact with law enforcement? Well, that's going to cause my score to be higher than another person's score for reasons that are beyond my control. And so it's really important that the risk assessments that are used include what the experts call dynamic factors instead of static factors. Those static factors are things about me that I can never change. I can never change that I am a person of color. I cannot change how old I was at the time of my offense. But the experts say we should look at dynamic factors. What are those things about me that I can change? What kind of education have I taken advantage of while I'm in the institution? What kind of programming have I taken advantage of? Have I remained incident free while I've been in prison? So it's important to consider dynamic factors, factors about me that I can change, as well as those static factors, again, that are known to be inherently biased. Thank you, Olinda. We recently talked about the risk assessment tool that is being developed for the implementation of the First Step Act on our podcast. So we appreciate this reminder of why it's so important. And listeners, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as we discussed pattern in its development. And it also speaks to the importance of independent oversight of these risk assessment tools. Alinda, like you had mentioned in the article and have spoken to. So uh, let's talk about the next piece of reform being discussed, reducing supervision periods. What impact can this make? So I would say that reducing supervision periods and reducing supervision conditions can have a significant impact. When a person walks out of prison, most people walk out of prison wanting to get their lives together, wanting to make a change and needing support for doing so. And so when a person leaves prison and they are handed a sheet of paper that says, this is a list of 23 or more conditions that you have to abide by. These are not conditions that are designed for you. These are conditions that we give to everyone as they walk out of the prison door. And so some jurisdictions have moved towards decreasing the sheer number of conditions that a person has to abide by. But we must remember that supervision is not a one-size-fits-all concept. First of all, everybody doesn't need to be supervised. And this is where we need to do some forward thinking. Does everybody who leaves prison need to be supervised? Some people are able to leave prison as changed individuals and should be allowed to move on with their lives. Supervision should not be the same for everybody. Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all concept. And in those situations where supervision is required, the conditions should be such that it meets the individual's needs 
and helps to provide them support to succeed. And when that person has shown that they are able to walk without walkers and training wheels, that they can successfully continue with reentry, we don't need to continue supervision. Continued supervision for people who don't need it serves no purpose except to further dehumanize individuals. And very often it keeps them in what they call a trap so that if they're caught doing something that they're not supposed to do, they automatically will be sent back to prison. And in many cases, it really takes away the hope that a person can foster as they're going through the reintegration process. So we really need to think about, especially in this example that I mentioned in the article, with this gentleman who served 30 years in prison, and is still on supervision, having asked several times, when can I get off of supervision? I am doing quite well. People in the community have vouched for my success. I have the support that I need. Why do I need to continue to report two to three times a week or once a month? Why do I have to leave my job and continue to go and submit urine samples? I've not even shown that I've had a drug problem. So these conditions that continue for what seems like eternity for many really defeat the purpose of supervision. And again, they offer no support at all in many cases. Well, Linda, if I could ask a follow-up question, you know, what you've just highlighted is very compelling What if, I guess, you know, if we could just add on to this conversation, one question that I think pops up in some minds when we consider these sort of reforms, what is the potential impact on public safety? Or is that one of the reasons why there's the system of all these check-ins and this prolonged supervision? And what would be the answer to that? And that's a good question because very often the reason given for these continued onerous conditions is public safety. But what we know from expert reports is that public safety does not increase in states where they have more conditions. As a matter of fact, in states where the conditions are not as onerous, they find that public safety is actually increased. And so there really is no correlation between public safety and many of the supervision conditions that are imposed. Yes, A person needs to abide by the condition of not committing a new offense. Yes, a person needs to abide by the law and not be in possession of guns or weapons. But when you talk about many of the other conditions that are imposed, they have absolutely nothing to do with public safety. Thank you for that elaboration. So 
this next question is kind of a continuation. We'll probably have a little overlap with what you were just speaking to, but the suggested reform to model a more restorative approach to supervision that includes providing access to resources. What impact would that make? And what would that even look like? So a couple of things that we need to be mindful of. One is that there's not much rehabilitation that takes place in prisons. So for all of the TV shows that people have watched and they believe that there is so much education and programming that's taking place behind bars, in many situations, that's just simply not the case. Prisons serve to warehouse individuals who have been sent there to serve their time. In most cases, an individual who leaves prison rehabilitated has done so because they themselves have made a personal commitment to be transformed. They have gone through a personal journey to change their lives. In many cases, it involves peer education, mentoring, And I see this all the time when I go in and out of the institutions and I see the older prisoners who we've sent away to serve decades behind bars mentor many of the young men and women who are coming in um, into into the system. Incarceration itself is traumatizing to people who have already experienced numerous traumas in their lives prior to getting there. So when we send individuals to prison, we have to remember that we're sending not just that individual to prison, but also their families as well. And so restorative justice looks like including families in the reintegration process. It looks like including families in the incarceration process. I think most people would be really, really surprised to know how much prison phone calls cost, to know how much families spend to go and travel to visit their loved ones. We also have to remember that in many cases, when women are sent to prison, their children are taken away. And so as they are reintegrating, family reunification is really, really important. And so the restorative approach would be approach that involves the community, it would involve families, and it would involve victims. One of the things that we know, and I participate in several lobbying organizations in the state of Maryland, and we have individuals who have been victims of crime, who have talked about going through the restorative justice process, meeting with the individuals who have harmed them or their families, and being a part of the reunification and reintegration process. Especially in many communities, 
a person who may be sent to prison could also be a person who has suffered from being a victim of crime. So there's not so much difference and it's not a one against the other approach that has to be taken, but communities are harmed, families are harmed, and we all need to be restored as we look at folks who are returning home from prison. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In your recent CJ Magazine article, you stated that parole conditions must be limited and individualized to reach a specific lifestyle goal. And as I read that, I found myself wondering what resources it would take to accomplish that. And I also wondered how jurisdictions with limited resources might be able to accomplish this or really any of the reforms that we've discussed. But do you have anything you can share with us what resources it would take and how it could be accomplished? So I think that what really is needed is a reshifting of resources. When you look at the number of parole officers that are hired in different jurisdictions, and you look at the time that they spend, you know, with individuals on their caseloads, not just time they spend with the individual, because very often the time that they spend with the individual is a 15 minute meeting, you know, the person walks into the office and, you know, are you doing what you're supposed to do? Fill out the form. Are you staying out of trouble? Okay, that's a 15 minute encounter. But if we talk about shifting those resources and not requiring everybody who's on supervision to go through the same routine process of leaving their job and coming into an office two to three times a week, going to submit urine samples on a regular basis. I think that if we can shift those resources, save those in-person interactions for people that really need it and make them more meaningful, then I think that we can achieve a much more certain goal in terms of providing people with the support that they need. So I don't always look at it as an increase in resources. I see it as a reshifting of the resources that are already out there. And I think that parole officers need to be retrained on providing holistic services. And again, I think that when we shift the requirements that we're already placing on people who are on supervision, I believe that the resources are there. It's just a matter of prioritizing and readjusting those resources. Okay, thank you so much. So you've walked us through a lot and shared a lot of great insights with us. Do you have any final thoughts on this topic that you would like to leave with our listeners before we wrap up? So I would just say a few things. One is, I think that when we look at what we have all been through in the last year and a half, 
I look at it as us being on timeout, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. we've, been, we've been told to just take a seat, take a deep breath, prioritize, identify what is most important in your life. I think that it's the same with the criminal justice system. And I often refer to it as the criminal injustice system, because certainly for people of color, there is not much justice. But I do think that since we've had the time to pause and think about how we have been doing things, that we cannot go back to business as usual. Filling up our jails and prisons with people of color, we just cannot continue to do this. And now is the time to offer real, meaningful opportunities for people who have been sent to prison to be released. And so the parole system, I believe, must do its part. When the pandemic started, governors were issuing orders to decarcerate. And we saw it happen on the front end, people being put on home detention instead of being told to go to prison pretrial. So we saw a lot of it happening on the front end. What we didn't see was a lot of releases happening on the back end. And so I believe that parole systems as they conduct business now across the US has become a clog in the system instead of an enhancement that gives people meaningful opportunities to earn their freedom. And so I really think that now is the time for us to make changes, not go back to business as usual, and for paroling authorities to become more meaningful in a very restorative kind of way. Well, thank you very much, Olinda. You've given us a lot to think about. We appreciate you taking the time to share with all of us your expertise and Again, your insight into the criminal justice system in this specific space of parole and where we can be doing better. So thank you again. And listeners, once again, this is Alinda Moyd, who is an adjunct professor of law at the Howard University School of Law. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.